Welcome to World House Radio Stories of Home. I'm Sarah Tranum, host of this weekly podcast that brings you interviews with leaders and innovators in the fields of housing and design. Each week we discuss the issues and solutions surrounding housing from the local and global perspectives. This week we focus on the energy system of the home. Even though humans have relied on the power of the sun as a source of heat and light for thousands of years, it is only recently that solar energy has become a regular topic of conversation when discussing our dependence and fossil fuel burning power. The idea of placing solar panels on the roof once seemed out of reach for most homeowners, but advancements in this technology are making it more efficient, more affordable, and an increasingly attractive option for offsetting energy costs and selling homegrown power back to the grid. From rooftop panels to sunlight absorbing house paint to flexible panels that can be worn on clothing and backpacks, tremendous resources are being spent to develop efficient means of harnessing the sun's rays, leaving us to wonder, can solar power be the answer to our energy needs? Here to provide more insight about the future of solar energy is Cecile Warner. Cecile is a project manager at the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Lab. She is recognized for her outstanding and sustained work towards the advancement of solar photovoltaic technology. She received the Women in Solar Energy Award from the American Solar Energy Society for her contributions, particularly her public outreach efforts. Cecile has led the laboratory in developing and managing the highly acclaimed U.S. Solar Decathlon. This is a competition where teams of college and university students compete to design the most attractive, effective, and efficient solar-powered house. She was also project director of Sunrace 93, a university competition for solar cars. She holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in mechanical engineering. Cecile, thanks for being a guest on World House Radio. Thanks very much, Sarah. Can you talk about the National Renewable Energy Lab and the work you're doing there on solar photovoltaic research? Sure. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory was previously known as the Solar Energy Research Institute, formed back in the late 1970s by an act of Congress. And as a national laboratory, we get most of our funding from the U.S. Department of Energy. We do research in all fields of renewable energy. And for the past quite a few years, (laughs) I've been working in photovoltaics, which is the direct conversion of sunlight to electricity in solar cells. Aside from your involvement in the research end of solar photovoltaic technology, you've also been instrumental in the development and ongoing success of the U.S. Solar Decathlon. Can you talk more about this contest and some of the resulting projects? I'd be happy to. The Solar Decathlon is the brainchild of the Department of Energy's Richard King, who's a program manager of photovoltaics at the Department of Energy. Uh, He is a remarkable individual because he's been involved not only in the R&D side of things, but in trying to think about what will stimulate the public's interest to use energy more efficiently. So I think one night over dinner, he and his wife, Melissa, were talking about the various ways that solar powers our lives, or it could if we had it. And they started counting on their fingers and came up with 10 ways, and suddenly they decided, well, what about a competition called the Solar Decathlon? So they named it without even realizing that it would ever come to being. But when Richard pitched the idea to several of us here at the laboratory, we decided 
decided it was a fabulous idea to try to get college students involved and interested in the topic of solar energy. And the idea that we had was to try to make the competition interesting enough that people would come to see it. So that meant really building something as opposed to just designing something. And the Solar Decathlon was born. The 10 contests that we held during the first competition in 2002 demonstrated all aspects of the energy we use in our lives from lighting and heating and cooling in your house to running an electric car because transportation is a big part of our domestic energy needs. The students were required to do laundry and cook and entertain. <laughs> Every aspect of our daily lives was powered by the sun in this competition. We also thought that solar energy is not only functional but beautiful. So part of the competition centers around the aesthetic value of a solar-powered home. And what I think is remarkable and has evolved during the 2002 and 2005 event, and now we're going into 2007's decathlon, is that there are infinite number of solutions to the problem of how to design and build a beautiful solar-powered home, not just one way to do it. So with transportation, we found that designs kind of iterated to a sort of single solution, a certain shape and size and a way to deploy PV cells on the car seemed to emerge. But with the houses, we continue to see a huge variety of designs, all of which solve the problem of using solar energy to power your life. Can you talk a little bit about the teams and the work that goes into being able to come up with a built structure and some of the interesting and notable results that have come out of the most recent decathlon? The most astonishing thing about this is you have to keep reminding yourself when you see the beautiful homes that are built and operating on the National Mall in Washington during the competition that the builders this is most likely their very first design and their very first construction project. And the average age is the average age of a college student, so around 20. I find that rather astonishing in any event. And then I also find it even more amazing that they have to build to a certain schedule. And anyone who's ever built a house for themselves knows that meeting a certain schedule that you set out for yourself with all of the traits, people involved and deadlines and weather and so forth is difficult even in the commercial environment. So the fact that these students not only transport their designs to the mall and build them and assemble them and operate them for one week, but that they all do it during the same week because they're compelled to, um, that requires around-the-clock dedication. And you can never pay them, I guess, to work that hard. The first competition we held in 2002, we gave the teams a mere $5,000 in seed money, and they were required to raise all of the rest of the capital to build their projects and get donated materials on their own. Fortunately, we've been very lucky to have attracted the enthusiasm of the Department of Energy to the point where the teams now have a research and development component to work on building integrated photovoltaics in their projects, and we were able to give them a contract for more money, $100,000. Still nowhere near what these projects cost since they're hand-built, hand-crafted, one-of-a-kind designs with high-technology elements, but not only high-technology elements. And you asked about the kinds of materials that go into the houses, most of these students, nearly all of them, are very passionate about the environment, about the future, and about limited resources, not only from the standpoint of energy, but 
other attributes of home. So we have seen the deployment of really interesting new materials like aerogel, which is a material that's light transmitting. It's kind of a translucent material that also provides insulation. So it's sort of a hybrid between a window and a wall. We've seen really interesting deployments of lighting, complex control systems that allow the house to kind of adjust itself to what the environment is doing. All of this in addition to low technology, natural materials in countertops and a wallboard, and then of course the deployment of photovoltaics, which provide the energy to do all of the activities. What attracted you to want to work on solar photovoltaic technology? Well, I've been working in solar energy since I was an undergraduate. I got excited about the idea of converting sunlight to thermal energy, and that was in the 70s when we had sort of the first boom in solar energy. And I've worked as a mechanical engineer in a lot of different solar energy projects, but there's no question there's a certain cachet to the direct conversion of sunlight to electricity. You know, a solid-state device sits there quietly and does its job <laughs> without any movement or moving parts, and PV modules have been deployed all around the world that are still working 20 and 25 and sometimes even 30 years later without maintenance and without the need to refurbish them in a way that a mechanical system would require. Uh, furthermore, electricity is very precious, and it's the kind of energy that you can use to do almost anything else, including, as we talked about earlier, powering an electric vehicle. So transportation is another option that you can use the electricity from photovoltaics to do. And I found that intriguing, too, because while thermal energy could be used ultimately to power a car, it's a more difficult problem. That's not to say that I'm not still a big fan of solar thermal systems, but I have chosen to work in photovoltaics because I think it's something that, while very few people understand the physics of, everybody understands the sort of output of because we've all used electricity in our lives. Building integrated photovoltaic research at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory focuses on the integration of photovoltaic panels into buildings during construction. Can you talk more about this process and how often it's being used in the building industry? The use of building integrated photovoltaics is one of those terrific ideas that we're still trying to move toward the large-scale deployment of. When you're considering the design of a new building, the ideal situation would be that you can use the photovoltaics as part of the skin of the building, replacing a roof or a facade material and thereby saving money while the PV module would serve both functions as the waterproof skin of the building and generating electricity. In in practice, the cost of a product like that remains somewhat higher per kilowatt hour of generated electricity over the lifetime of the unit than does a system where you deploy the modules on the rooftop. So what we're working toward is to make those products less expensive and yet retain the efficiency to make them easier to deploy, minimizing the number of tradespeople that have to interact in order to install such a thing. So an example of a product that is in widespread use now is a roof tile. California in particular, new construction in the residential arena often involves the use of a tile style roof. So 
there are now a number of commercial products where you can simply replace one-to-one a PV roof tile with a conventional roof tile. And that's the kind of building integrated device that is beginning to take off because people recognize it as a familiar looking building element. And in a neighborhood where there may be sort of aesthetic considerations and covenants, a desire to keep a uniform look and feel in a new development, those tiles make it possible to do that. What other kind of examples are you seeing where the technology is being integrated into something that's more accessible to an average homeowner? Well, there are thin film roof shingles that, again, you know, simply replace a typical composite asphalt shingle of the sort that is used in new construction throughout the, certainly the Midwestern part of the U.S. and I think in the Northeast as well. So those are typically based on a thin film photovoltaic that has a somewhat lower efficiency than what's commercially possible. But we see a lot of those being deployed in new construction. The trick is that new construction is a tiny fraction of the total housing population. So we're also very interested to understand how we can get something that's nearly integrated. I mean, it may not, in fact, replace the skin of the building, but it might look more integrated for a retrofit market because a lot of people already own their homes and they're trying to figure out what to do to make solar a possibility for them. And I'm happy to say that more and more products are coming out based on conventional photovoltaic technology with crystalline silicon, which is the most common material used as the semiconductor, that look more similar in color, for example, to the roof materials that are out there. And when they're installed, they don't show up quite as much. I mean, most people, while they may celebrate solar, maybe they don't want to look at a PV panel. So those products are available now much more readily. And there are lots of what we call system integrators who are available as different markets around the country are made more attractive to solar because of local or national legislation that incentivizes people to use solar, but you can put it on your own existing house with a certified installer. Then in the new development, which is just limited to a few people who are in the market for a brand new home. So that way it gets more into the hands of more homeowners. And in fact, I'm such a homeowner. I owned my house before building integrated photovoltaic products were available. And I'm happy to say I have a very nice looking building applied system on the roof of my house, which meets the needs of all of my neighbors as well as my own electricity bill. (laughs) Can you talk more about how much energy your home produces from solar PV cells and how this compares to your overall energy needs? Yeah, as you might imagine, as an energy insider, I've already done a lot of things to make my house relatively energy efficient during the construction process. So my energy needs are not that great, and my electric bill is relatively modest. In my house, I have a two kilowatt PV system installed on the roof, and that meets 100% of my electricity needs over the course of a year. Now, there are times when I use a little bit more than I'm generating. Certainly, that's true at night. And there are times when I'm generating more than I'm using, but on balance over the course of a year, it comes out to just about net even. And that's a good deal for me. And in the meantime, the neighbors don't mind the way it looks, (laughs) which is also a good deal for me. Interesting. So are you actually selling back to the grid? 
The way that it works is that there is a single meter that really operates in both directions. Each municipality, each jurisdiction, and each utility company probably has a slightly different way that they like to operate it. But in Colorado, where I live, we have net metering laws in place, which means that if I connect up to the grid with a legitimate system, they'll buy what I make, and I only have to pay for the difference between what they provide for me and what I provide for them. You mentioned the new materials that are coming out about the efficiency, and I know that's one of the things I read a lot about is questioning of how efficient photovoltaic technology really is, especially if you're in areas where you're not getting full sunlight, for example, in a place like here in Toronto. And I'm just curious if you can talk about efficiency and how it's changed and where it's going in terms of making it more efficient. Well, for what we call terrestrial applications, so we're not looking at space right now, which is another place that we use photovoltaics, there are a number of products that you might see in commercial use for residential applications. And nearly all of them, but not 100% of them, are based on silicon, crystalline silicon, either multi-crystalline or single crystal silicon. And you can tell the difference between those two in the look because multi-crystalline has more of a shapes and bits in the cell if you look at it up close and single crystal has a very uniform look to it. But both of those products, the typical product you can buy in a module has a conversion efficiency and all of these would be measured by the same standards in a laboratory of around, so let's say 14 to 17% conversion efficiency. And the very most efficient you can buy is probably approaching 20% for just the module. By the time it gets into a system, the conversion efficiency will drop off a little because you have other pieces and parts of the system which will diminish the efficiency of the entire system. That's converting sunlight to electricity. So still, if you're in the range of 15%, let's say, for a system efficiency, that's pretty darned impressive. Now, when you talk about production, that's when you have to worry about a place that has less sunlight available compared to a place like here. On the same kind of bright sunny day at noon in the middle of the summer in Toronto, you'll have terrific solar output from a PVC system that's properly oriented. So the efficiency doesn't suffer, but what suffers is the available electricity over the course of the year, the energy that you can produce because there's less solar resource available. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not affordable to do it in a place like Toronto because if it's very expensive to buy electricity from the utility or if the utility has some reason why they're trying to offset their load around the peak hours in the middle of the summertime and they may incentivize you to produce electricity during those times, it may actually be more affordable to have a system in Toronto than somewhere else. This is a classic thing where your actual mileage may vary and you have to do your homework or hopefully you have a local system installer who can help you with that homework to look at the numbers. But there's also a non-cost related reason to put a system that generates electricity from the sun on your own house and that is that over time, the more people who do that, the more other environmental benefits there can be, which also have a cost associated with them or or a value, I should say, associated with them, which you may discover only over the fullness of time. You know, I don't think anyone makes their decision to do a solar system purely on dollars and cents, but rather on the idea that it has a reasonable payback period. They've looked at the numbers, they understand how it's going to go, and they feel like it's also the right thing to do for the long term.
A criticism of solar photovoltaic cells is the amount of embodied energy required in their manufacturing. There are questions of when and if the energy output from the cells exceeds the inputs of energy and materials needed in making the solar panels. Can you talk about this and if the technology is heading towards a less energy and resource intensive process? Well, that's a, an interesting question. I have done some reading, but I, I will say that I'm not an expert in that area. The people that I depend on to answer those questions tell me that it takes less than three years, somewhere between one and three years, to generate the electricity that would offset what was used to produce the photovoltaic device in the first place. So if you expect that your product has a 30-year life, and most companies offer a 20-year guarantee, so a 30-year expectation isn't too far off, and you have to offset at two years worth of a sort of mortgage on the electricity, if you will, it's a pretty good deal, I think. One couldn't argue, I suppose, whether those numbers are correct, but every company who produces photovoltaics has the incentive to make it as efficiently as they can. There's certainly quite a bit of embodied energy in producing the actual silicon product, and so a lot of our R&D work goes into looking for more efficient and effective ways to produce the base material for the PVs cell that may not require as much refining and casting and so forth. That's not my area of expertise, but my understanding is that every single company who produces photovoltaics is looking hard at the energy that goes into their production and manufacturing facility to reduce it because they'll save money too. How has the approach to solar energy changed since you first began working in the field, both from the technology standpoint and attitudinal changes from the building sector and the public at large? Wow. Um, the changes that I have seen in the technology are really astonishing. Not so much that the materials have changed in the last 20 years, but the cost has come down so dramatically that it is now a commercially available product. I think that coupled with the increased awareness of the value of energy, the cost of energy, each time there's sort of an uptick in the price of gas or the price of heating oil, people take greater notice of energy. And there's a the heightened awareness, I think, amongst the population about people's energy use and how it has effects on other aspects of their lives. The biggest change, though, during my career has been moving solar energy from kind of a boutique industry to a legitimate force to be reckoned with, with lots of venture capitalists interested to invest in PV and other solar technologies. I mean, you can argue what the numbers are. Is solar a $10 billion a year business or is it more than that? I mean, how much does it leverage? In any case, even a billion-dollar business was kind of unthinkable through much of my career. So it's a huge relief to see at this juncture that it's finally a business. It's finally a product you can go buy, and it's available in places like your home improvement center. And, you know, it's available internationally, and every developed country is working hard to utilize solar energy and make it part of their energy picture in their country. So that's the biggest change. So that leads me to my next question. What is one of the most exciting things happening right now in solar photovoltaic research? The most exciting thing in the research realm well, as you can imagine, somehow excitement and research don't necessarily go hand in hand because it is, it's a long plotting process and there are very few aha moments. But that said, I guess what holds great promise is the fact that as we see greater volume of 
photovoltaics being deployed, we're seeing more interest in other materials for base electricity generation. For example, devices based on gallium arsenide, which have historically been what powered spacecraft over the you know last couple of decades. Those products and silicon photovoltaics can now be found in concentrator systems that in areas of the globe, let's say the southwestern United States or Spain or Greece, are now being deployed in large grid-connected sort of more utility-type systems. So I realize that that's outside of the housing deployment market, but honestly, that's where the real cost changes are going to happen because, you know, if you can envision a very, very large solar power plant that could replace a pretty darn large fossil fuel power plant, you've made a huge impact and you've done it all in one go. It's a lot harder to get that many kilowatts or megawatts or terawatts of electricity by doing it house to house. So for me, the combination of seeing it happen in the residential sector and also seeing it happen in the large-scale grid-connected sector and seeing countries around the world doing that, both with photovoltaics and with solar thermal systems that generate electricity, that's where solar not only becomes a big business, but it starts taking a large share of the global energy needs. What is the future of the technology, and do you think that everyone will be utilizing some form of photovoltaic panel, whether it's on their house or themselves, to harness the sun's energy at some point in the future? Well, I think we've already seen how commonplace solar cells are. In terms of what materials might come along and be of interest, it's never a good idea to bet against silicon. <laughs> We've learned that over the years. I mean, there's some very interesting thin film materials. Copper indium selenide is a terrific thin film material. It has a really beautiful look to it. It can be formed in curves and around shapes. And I'm sure we will see more of that product. We'll see more cadmium telluride, photovoltaic-based devices as those efficiencies are going up and companies are jumping into the ring. Organic photovoltaics still have a long way to go to become a commercial product, but the efficiencies are moving in the right direction, and I think there'll be some good applications of that. I suspect that we'll see a multiplicity of technologies, but in the next 25 years, I don't think silicon is going away. Fortunately, it's one of the most abundant elements on the planet, and we've learned really well how to make relatively high-efficiency devices with it, and I think we'll see more of the gallium arsenide and its alloys, the very high-efficiency space-type devices here on Earth in the large-scale sort of utility-style application. So I think we're going to see a mix of technology sort of right-sizing them. You know, it's sort of like you wouldn't buy a pickup truck if all you had to do is drive back and forth to the grocery store. You'll buy the right photovoltaic product for the right application. If it's your calculator, it's one thing. And if it's the utility plant in the desert southwest, it's quite another. So I just think we'll see more and more of it. One of the things that's going to be a big question mark for the R&D piece is once you have that much PV out there and it starts to be a big part of any utilities power generating mix, how will you handle the periods of time when you need storage when the sun's not shining? Those are interesting challenges. Our laboratory is working on that a little bit with some very innovative ways to store energy and carbon nanotubes, for example. So I think we'll see an uptick in the interest level in working on companion R&D that goes with the energy generating work that PV can provide. How do you think that however the future plays out with solar energy, that it will change the design and the experience of our cities and our individual homes? 
I don't think I know the answer to that, but I think I know how to get the answer. And that is for us to continue to involve young students and students at the college level in engaging them in these technologies earlier in their careers. Part of what's exciting about Solar Decathlon is that it involves a collaboration, sometimes a, an unhappy collaboration, but one that eventually gets sorted out between building designers and energy experts. So engineers and architects working hand in hand because they must to make buildings both efficient and energy producing and aesthetic to look at. So we look to the future, we look to those smart young people to figure out how our cities might morph. But I think the idea of getting them interested in the problem early in their careers is the secret to the transformation that absolutely must occur in our cities. My last question for you is, as someone working on projects that imagine the future of solar homes, and as you mentioned, working with young people and encouraging them to also think about the possibilities, what does home mean to you and how would you like to live in the future? Well, I've had the good fortune to live in a solar house since um, about 1985. So for me, home is a place that has fabulous daylighting and it's a modest space. It accommodates the people who live there, but it doesn't have a lot of unused rooms. But it's a delight to wake up in. It's a place that makes you feel alive and engaged. It surrounds you with good materials and in interesting forms and shapes. That's what home feels like for me. I'm not sure that our culture is ready for that, <laughs> but I think anyone who's ever woken up in a solar house with a passive design and good architecture knows that there's something special about a home that can power itself and that can light itself. And I think there's a human tendency to overlook that. And I think that being more connected to the coming weather and more connected to the environment is something that is a gift from a solar-powered home. If you had your choice and how it plays out over the next few decades, how would you like to live in the future, the future that has solar energy as an important component? Well, let's just take a day in my future life. So I wake up in my solar-powered house, and I have solar-powered electricity to operate the stove to make my breakfast, and then I go hop in my plug-in hybrid. <laughs> and uh, that was also charged up overnight by the solar system on my house. Maybe I have to drive someplace. If I do, I'm going to do it in a road that doesn't have too many fossil fuel emissions, and I'm going to work in a space that has a clever and smart design. Design. I'm fortunate that I do have that actually now. I work in an office building, well, actually a laboratory building that is a solar design also. And I'm imagining that there's a solar component becomes completely natural and sort of an everyday, of course, we have that in the way we grow our food and the way we make decisions about what to do next. I'm not sure I've really contemplated that question all that well, but that's what I'm imagining the future could look like. And I don't think the future is very far away. I think, I think we can all have that now. Yeah, I'd like to agree with that. Cecile, thank you for your time and expertise and being a part of World House Radio Stories of Home. Thanks very much, Sarah. To learn more about the National Renewable Energy Lab, the U.S. Solar Decathlon, and the subject of solar photovoltaic technology, check out the links on our website, www.worldhouse.ca. The two songs used in today's program are both about the sun. These songs were created by independent artists willing to share their music online for free. The artists can be found on garageband.com, a website promoting new and emerging independent musicians. Links to the artists can also be found at our website. World House Radio is a project of the Institute Without Bound 
boundaries. To learn more about the program and the work we're doing on the World House Project, please visit www.worldhouse.ca or www.institutewithoutboundaries.com. Join us next week for another episode of World House Radio Stories of Home.